0: The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's my message today. It's one of my favorite little insights out of the Gospels. And I remember reading many, many years ago several references to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when I first read it, I thought it was a little odd because I thought, well, in my simple mind, I reasoned, well, God loves everybody. So who's this guy? the disciple that Jesus loves. But all of the references, there's five of them, are found in the Gospel of John. And they're all about John. So he's writing about himself. And he says, for example, it first shows up in the 13th chapter at the Lord's Supper. And John's writing about it. And he says, one of his disciples, the one who Jesus loved, was at the table to the right of Jesus in the place of honor, leaning on Jesus' chest. Then in chapter 19, he writes, So when Jesus saw his mother as he was hanging on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then Mary Magdalene at the tomb encounters Jesus. And it says in John 20, So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And then in chapter 21 there's two references and the first one says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. This was after the resurrection, and they're fishing on the Lake of Galilee, and they're in the boat, and they see Jesus on the shore, and he's grilling some fish. And uh, so the disciple whom Jesus loves turned to Peter and said, It's the Lord. And the Bible says Peter jumped out of the boat and swam to shore uh, to, to be the first one to get there at Jesus. And then finally, later in the chapter, it says, And Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, This was the disciple, this was the disciple. Again, John's writing this about himself. Just found a little peculiar. (laughs) He saw the disciple that Jesus loved following them. This was the disciple who had leaned back against Jesus' chest at the meal and asked, Lord, are you the one? Or or Lord, who is the one who is going to betray you? Now we know Jesus was accustomed to changing disciples' names. So that might be the first thing that we think, well, Jesus just uh, named John the disciple whom I love. But who do you think gave him that name, the disciple whom Jesus loved? It's kind of a rhetorical question because I kind of already answered it, didn't I? But since the only places where the reference, the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, appears in the Gospel of John, and we know that He wasn't Jesus' pet. He wasn't Jesus' favorite disciple. So it's left for us to realize that John took it on himself to name himself as he's writing the Gospel of John. He never refers to himself as John. Always calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So in short, the way we want to interpret this is pretty simple. John saw Jesus' love for him and the rest of the disciples. He saw Jesus' love. He is the one, remember, who wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So John saw Jesus' love for them as the central, prominent, main feature, the central motivation for everything that Jesus did. So John chooses to define himself by Jesus' love for him, because he sees that's the main thing that drives Jesus. Everything he does, he's moved and motivated by love. So himself, he finds his identity in the fact that Jesus loves him. Now, in later years, John speaks about love in his writing more than any other author in the Bible. In fact, The Apostle John wrote about the most important and the most philosophically difficult and deep and profound truths of any writer in the Bible, yet he used the most simple, small phrases, small words to describe the biggest issues. He wrote about life and eternity, he wrote about love, wrote about fear, all these basic forces so prominent in life. And in 1 John 4.10, he's speaking about love and he reveals the secret. So I'm going to share it with you. The secret to knowing and walking in God's love. So if you're ready for it, here it is. In this, emphasis on the word this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, very simple, short phrase, and yet volumes of revelation. In his statement, John pulls the foundation out from under every single person who is struggling to get God's attention by trying to prove that they love him. But John said, that's not love. That's not where love comes from. That's not what motivates love. That's not what's going to make love work in you. The fact is, all of us have got to admit that our love, our ability to love, is flawed because it's strained through a nature that's flawed and broken and has had a lot of strange experiences and has therefore informed our love in a a broken way. And so our love's very imperfect, but we still struggle. I mean, Christians are the worst because once we get saved, we naturally know that God loves us and we love Him, but we struggle in our own love to have that relationship with Him. And, uh, but he says this is love, not that we love God, but that He first loved us. And that is the foundation for our ability to love Him back by simply receiving His love. Later on in that fourth chapter in fact John does say we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Perfect love casts out all fear. When we try to love with our own love, realize God loves us. What's the first thing our love tells us? It rats us out, it informs on us. Our love, I don't know about you, but when I'm trying to love God with my own Nick's love, the first thing Nick's love does is turn on me, and I see myself through the lens of all my flaws and my failures, and you know, I could have been a better dad, I ought to be a better husband, I ought to be a better pastor, falling short. all these things. Well, well the Bible says, perfect love so I can't be talking about my love. Perfect love does what? Casts out fear. My love attracts fear. My love is filled with fear. Am I doing it right? Am I getting this across? Am I going to fail? It pulls me back. It holds me back. You understand? You probably see kind of where I'm going with this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. Now, perhaps some of the other disciples might have believed that Jesus' primary motivation towards them was his mission. Jesus came with a mission, and that certainly would be true, right? Jesus was on a mission, and Jesus personified the word mission. Nobody handled mission like Jesus handled mission. So, to me, it's very reasonable that some of the disciples might have seen his sense of mission and obedience to that mission and following that mission as the primary motivation for all that they saw Jesus doing and that that he basically then would have valued them as followers or ministers of his gospel, in which case they would have referred to themselves as the disciple who followed Jesus or the disciple who served Jesus. If you think the main motivation for Jesus relating to you is his sense of mission, then what do you want to be? You want to be the disciple that stays on mission. I write about myself. I say I'm the disciple who serves the Lord. And so our own identity in our relationship with God is based on our response to Him and not His love for us. But because John identified with Jesus' love for him, that brought John into a really a unique place. It it elevated John among all the disciples. And when this message is over with, you'll see some of the remarkable ways that because he, he allowed God's love for him to be the, the prominent feature of his life and his own relationship with the Lord, it brought John into some very unique positions in his life. So we also we also should identify ourselves by Jesus' love for me. Think about it. Question yourself. I'd like to put some some, uh, descriptions of the way most believers love God and think about themselves and their relationship with Jesus out there. And just consider this. Is your relationship with Jesus defined on how you are towards Him or how He is towards you? grab hold of that and just take it and unpack it, think about it a little bit. You see, some people see themselves as having come to Jesus more than Jesus having come to them. Some people see their relationship with Jesus as more of a necessity on their part than a desire on his part. They have a stronger sense of their own need for him than his own love for them. Some people see their walk with Jesus being driven by their pursuit of him more than his pursuit of them. And some people think God's motivation towards them is determined more by their correct actions towards him than by his perfect love for them. When people see Jesus in these ways, their tendency is to conclude or to think about themselves. They maybe put it in different words, but it basically boils down to, I'm not very spiritual, so God cannot be very interested in me. I can see where God would be very interested in this person because, you know, they're always doing spiritual things. But I'm kind of a mixture So God can't love me as much as he loves that person. And if John had referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus forgave, for instance, or the disciple upon whom Jesus took pity, or the disciple who Jesus tolerated, there's always one. You get a dozen of them, there's one of them. Jesus tolerates them. And most of us would see ourselves as the one Jesus tolerates. So if John had referred to himself in any of those terms, he would have been focusing more on himself than on Jesus, wouldn't he? His whole relationship with Jesus would have been filtered more through his own view of himself than really seeing and understanding Jesus, how can you really know the love of God? How can you embrace Jesus and let him embrace you if your whole relationship with him is filtered through first and primarily your own reactions and responses to him rather than this is love that he first loved me. And that defines everything. And so that's how I choose to relate with him. When John saw, I put to you this morning, that when John saw that Jesus loved him, he overlooked his own shortcomings, put him aside, and accepted God's promotion of him to the status of disciple whom Jesus loved. He took the promotion because love gave him the promotion. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That understanding transformed John's life. Listen to what he read, uh, wrote a little further down in 1 John 4. I'd already uh, quoted some of it, but listen to it in his own words. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has in us. God is love, and the one who abides or resides in agape, in his love, ends up abiding in God, and God ends up abiding in him. Through this love, through this love is perfected in us, through, I'm sorry, the emphasis is, same words, emphasis should be different. Through this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. Let me pause and make a comment about that, because that statement's one of the most potent, powerful statements in the entire Bible. Through this, this knowing God's love, love becomes perfected in us so that we approach the day of judgment with total confidence. We're not afraid to appear before God in judgment, not because we know that we're perfect, we've mastered this thing, we're really obedient, that we never um, dirty ourselves with the things of the world or anything like that. We're constantly in the right frame of mind and behaving the way we should. So we he says, but it's by knowing God's love that we approach judgment, the judgment day, with confidence, and here's that phrase, because just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. What he meant by that was, in this world, we have the same relationship with the Father that sustained Jesus when he was here. That's exactly what he's saying. You don't have forgiveness because Jesus loves you, and now you get a do-over. And God's going to help you. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he spelled out the New Testament for you. So you get your Bible, you get the Holy Spirit, and you should be able to please God and overcome and obey Him. That is not, that, all that is, is just reconstituted law. All that is, is just the Old Testament Mosaic law, just redone and repackaged. That's not a new covenant. That's just the same old covenant condensed and abbreviated. It still boils down to you. Your whole relationship with God is based on you. And I am not saying that we don't have a part, but we don't have the main part. He's got the main part. Praise the Lord. He's got the main part. So the relationship that you have with God, guess what? That relationship has already been had, and it's already in existence. It's eternal, and it's ongoing. It's the son's relationship with the father. You have been welcomed into it. When the Bible talks about I stand at the door... And knock. What door do you think he's talking about? Your living room door? Your bedroom door? He is talking about the door into his relationship with the Father. It is an eternal door. It is a holy door. And he is wanting to come in and bring you in. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you shall go in and out and find pasture. So when you became born again, Even though you may not realize it, you actually inherited, you entered into the love the Father has for the Son and the love the Son has for his Father. That's the only, you know, that is the only relationship that heaven recognizes. Heaven does not recognize any other sonship, but the Father and Son relationship exists between Him and Jesus. You inherit that relationship. I wish I could pound on that a little bit more, Um, but I'm just going to leave it with you. By the way, he goes on after he says, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. Listen to what he says next. After laying that truth down on the table, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Remember before, moments before he had said, we don't fear the judgment we are going to face because we're walking in perfect love. So he comes around, and he picks that idea up again, and he says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. In other words, we're afraid we're going to be punished. We're afraid we're going to be rejected. We're we're afraid God's going to say, well, okay, I'm going to let you into heaven, but you're going to have to keep your distance. You're going to be a third tier member of heaven, not the not the primary, first-tier member of heaven. And he says, The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. Wow. That is a litmus test. Are you afraid? Is there a sense of personal condemnation, of marking yourself down, discounting yourself, throwing yourself on the um, clearance rack? Because you don't believe you're worthy of the price of the blood of Jesus. And so God's got you on the clearance rack. You fear punishment. And it causes you to discount yourself. When we sin, not if we sin, because remember it was John that dealt with the issue of sin. And First John, he said, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us. So the one who walks in love, he's not running out and sinning and then staying out in the world. He's just running back to God with all the goo and the the dust and the dirt all clogged up in his mind or or inner heart and coming and saying, Father, help. Father, help. And guess what? The Father helps. Because why? He loves you. Because he loves you. Did you raise your children ready to kick them to the curb when they acted up, throw them out, put them out of their inheritance? No. And it didn't matter how many times they did it. They may have exacerbated and frustrated you, but it really didn't matter. That's your earthly mom and dad. How How about Jesus, our perfect heavenly Father? We love, he ends up by saying, because he first loved us. That understanding of God's love for him transformed the son of thunder into an exceptional man of calm confidence. You say son of thunder. John did have a name that Jesus gave him. Him and his brother were called, they were a couple bikers. And, And Jesus said, oh, sons of thunder over there and then chose them to follow him and be one of his disciples, knowing that one of those sons of thunder was going to become the disciple whom Jesus loved. Look at the transformation that took took place. John, son of thunder, was called that because Jesus saw that he was not just impetuous, he was aggressive. He and his brother were aggressive. These were the two guys that were always getting into fights. And these were the two that could be very insensitive. When you read about John, you read about how that uh, in Samaria, when they didn't receive Jesus, um, he wanted to call fire down. Lord, do you want us to call fire down and roast these guys? And Jesus looked at the Son of Thunder and said, you don't know what spirit you're operating under. Yet this was the man that would later write of himself, um, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. I've traded all of that to become who he came to me in. That is the love of God. And I'm the disciple he loved. There's another incident. It, it's even more compelling and showing why Jesus called him sons of thunder. As Jesus is there towards the end of his ministry, and he's talking to the disciples and he's saying, they're going to crucify me. They're going to put me to death and offer up the Lamb of God. And he's, and he's describing to them how he's going to be beaten and mistreated by the Romans and by the Jewish Sanhedrin. So rather than coming up to comfort Jesus, say, Jesus, what can we, does this have to be this way? John runs up to him and he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at the, at the head of the table? Can we have your authority? Can we? The first thing is, how insensitive His sense of timing was driven by the fact that Jesus named him right three years before, sons of thunder. But Jesus still loved him, didn't he? He still loved him. It wasn't Jesus putting him down because Jesus knew what? What did Jesus know? Jesus knew how much he loved him and he he knew that all John and James had to do was believe and they would receive that love and that love would change them. And it did. Instead of being anxious and wanting to call down fire, instead of worrying about his position, oh, Jesus isn't going to be here. I want to make sure I get a good position. He all of a sudden is transformed into this incredibly calm man who has wonderful confidence. And he has shed any feelings of self-guilt for being the kind of guy that he was. So let me just share with you an admonition. Don't let your identity in this world, who you have been or who you are in this world, keep you from the transformation that God's love wants to bring in your life. And there is a a tragic example of this in the Gospels in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus meets the man who is referred to as the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, I, <clears throat> I want to inherit eternal life. And, um, and Jesus said, well, you know, you know what the word says. Have you been doing that, keeping the commandments? And all of a sudden he just rips off a list of them. He says, yes, I've done this, 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 and this. And Jesus said, oh, that's wonderful. Um, one thing you lack. And let me read exactly how the Bible records Jesus' response to him. After he says, Lord, I've kept all these rules from my youth up. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's how it started. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, just like he loved John. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure. And he was trying to make the guy rich. And come follow me but disheartened by the saying that Jesus said, go sell all that you have and come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Disheartened by that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had many great possessions. So again, I say to you, don't let what your life is in the world keep you from the wonderful transformation that the love of God is wanting to bring in your life. No matter what you have or don't have, any of those things, your abundance or your lack, can separate you from the love of God. It can keep you from from experiencing and having that love. And you could end up being the one who writes writes your own epitaph and says, I'm the disciple Jesus tolerated. I'm the disciple who could have done great things for God. I'm the disciple who Jesus let into heaven, or any of those things. Those are things that people write about themselves because they have not fully known and believed the love of God. They haven't accepted it. And that's really what the rich young ruler did, was he knew that Jesus was loving him, but he couldn't let go of what he had and have that love. I told you earlier that that John was transformed by the love of God, and it brought him into a very unique and and, um, uh, a very high position in the kingdom. His focus on Jesus' love for him brought him into positions of great favor, and I'd like to just mention a few of them. First of all, he was The one who had inside information at the Last Supper. He was the one leaning on Jesus. And he's the one who leaning on Jesus when Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. He just said quietly, Lord, which one is it? And Jesus told him. Jesus said, watch this. I'm going to dip the sop in this gravy, and I'm going to give it to the one who's going to betray me. John knew exactly who it was that was going to betray Jesus as Judas Iscariot gets up and walks out because he saw him take this up. Jesus revealed it to him, didn't reveal it to anyone else. And guess what? They were all at the table loudly saying, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And he didn't answer any of them. But John asked him, he gives him a little inside information. John was also the only disciple that was unharassed. At Jesus' arrest. The Bible says that Peter and John followed, read it. If, if you haven't read it, read it, go and read it. Read it in the gospels. They followed Jesus to the trial. They follow the soldiers. While Peter stays outside, the Bible says John went inside. John went into the high priest's house. John was in there watching and listening to the whole thing. Nobody laid hand, a hand on him nobody, Peter's out there, and some girl and a couple of other guys are saying, hey, we know you're with him, you're one of those Galileans, and Peter, and Peter gets angry and says, I don't know him, and he starts cussing. Another, another thing that, that was unique about John, he was entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother. You know, um, Jesus loved his mother, It's pretty obvious in his dying moments. He sees John standing beside her and he says to his his mom, behold your son, and he gives her care into John's hands. It's quite, quite a demonstration of trust. Who did God give the great revelation of the end times to? And it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ written by John. John the Revelator. And I would add this one final thing. He was the only disciple that couldn't martyr. He died of the ripe old age, 99, 100 years old. Legend uh, says that they tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't cook. (laughs) So they exiled him to the island of Patmos. We know that he was exiled to the island of Patmos. The Bible talks about it. The boiling in oil, I don't know. But it could have been true. All we do know is that of all those remaining apostles, they were all martyred, but they couldn't martyr John. He died of of long life and went to be with the Lord. So many people identify primarily with God's mercy, or they identify primarily with his forgiveness, or they primarily identify with this calling. You know, a lot of preachers, a lot of pastors, evangelists, people who are called to the ministry, their calling becomes the thing through which they know God, becomes their relationship with God. Now, I need to be careful not, not to separate this out because they're, they are intertwined. And I know this through personal experience. But the one thing I would say to you is that though all these things, God's mercy, His forgiveness, His calling, are all true. There's nothing wrong with knowing that, wow, you know, my relationship with God is, He called me, and I know that, or He had mercy on me, I know that, He's forgiven me, I know that. While they're all great, those are true, they are not the strongest connection to God. The greatest and the strongest connection to God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 says so. And now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith that believes that Jesus is God is strong. That's great. It'll get you into heaven. Having hope, having hope in heaven is great. It'll get you there. But knowing and believing I am the disciple who Jesus loves. If you could say that about yourself, and it's true, and you embrace it, and it is your daily, when you look in the mirror, it's the thing that allows you to see yourself. I am the disciple who God's love. That is the greatest. Faith, good. Hope, good. But the greatest is what? The love of God. So close your Bible with me. I'd like to take a few moments and just, let's pray about what we've just heard. Because we know that God loves us, but I want to pray that we will let Him love us. That we will truly open every door in our mind and heart and welcome the love of God so that we can say, I am the man who Jesus loves. I am the woman who Jesus loves. Does that sound good? Yes. Glory, hallelujah. Father God, we are so grateful today. Love came down. We are grateful today because um, there is no other God but you. You are God. It is it is baked into the very definition of what a what God is that He is sovereign, and that there is none beside him. You are the Almighty. What if, Lord, you being the Almighty, eternal God were just simply correct? You are the correct one. We would worship you as the correct one. There's no way you could save us. There's no way we could stay saved. We would always eventually become incorrect. But your word says God is love, we are awesome we are blown away we are so grateful we should all collectively sigh unto you a sigh forever of re- of relief god is love and we know this in so many levels but the greatest is that over 2000 years ago you stepped from eternity into history you came as jesus for jesus said to us If you've seen me, if you truly see me, you see the Father. I am in the Father and the Father's in me. I am the physical manifestation of the Father in the world. God so loves you that here I am. God so loves you that here I am. So, Father, we are absolutely grateful here I am. Love is here. And that is what we want to take hold of this morning, is how much you love us, how much you love the world and love people. You love the unlovely. And that love is the means by which we not only will one day be with you forever in eternity, but it's the vehicle through which we can relate with you we who were once completely separated because of our sin. If you're watching this or here in the sanctuary this morning and love is knocking on the door and you have yet to open that door and let Jesus come in, let the Father love you, receive His forgiveness and receive Him as love. Lord of life. I'm so glad that the authority, the king, the Lord, whom I am obligated to bow down before and worship is the king of love. Because he could have been the king of all kinds of things. King of love. So grateful. But if you have yet to bow before him and to receive him as king and Lord and Savior, he's coming and speaking to you in love right now. Make the decision Become the disciple, the follower that Jesus loves. And pray this simple prayer from your heart. Look over our heads. Look beyond me. Look beyond us. And look and see Jesus. And ask Him to come into your heart. Pray this prayer. Father, I believe that you came in Jesus Christ. And who has more genuine love, perfect love than you. I receive that love. Forgive my sins and transform me through that great love you have. I am yours forever. I lay my life in your hands. Thank you, Lord, for making me your child. Amen.